the Paul Leslie Hour, helping people tell their stories. And now, your host, Paul Leslie. Hey, it's me. I'm very pleased to be welcoming a master of songwriting. Pat Alger is a singer and songwriter, a guitarist, in addition to recordings made under his own name. Songs Pat Alger wrote or co-wrote have been recorded by a large number of artists. To name just a few, Livingston Taylor, Nancy Griffith, Kathy Matea, Hal Ketchum, Peter, Paul, and Mary, Lyle Lovett, Dolly Parton, and then of course the songs that Garth Brooks recorded, like The Thunder Rolls. Pat Alger is an inductee of the Nashville Songwriters Hall of Fame and also the Georgia Music Hall of Fame. And it's a great pleasure to welcome him here. Thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure, Paul. I just want to correct one thing. Uh, Lyle never cut any of my songs. He did sing on one of my records, but uh, he didn't. He didn't cut any of my songs. <laughs> well, thanks for catching that. <laughs> yeah, he, he he didn't need my help. I think he he was pretty capable of writing his own there. <laughs> so you grew up in Georgia, but you're originally from New York. Is that correct? Yeah, I was born in Long Island City, Queens, and uh, and my father was from from there. My mother was from Georgia. And uh, I went to second grade there, uh, and uh, at that time, I didn't go to kindergarten, so second grade ended, uh, I was still seven, so. And then we moved to Georgia, uh, South Georgia, a place called LaGrange, when I was seven, and grew up there, went to college in Atlanta. And so really, your early musical loves, it was folk music. Yep, I, I was uh, I was coming of age uh, when I got my guitar, when I was about four. 15, I think, and what was known as the big folk scare of the 60s uh, when, you know, you could actually have a hit record with a guitar, bass, and vocal, which the Kingston Trio did several times. Yeah, I was, uh, you know, I was interested in, in, uh, I was interested in a lot of things, but the folk music thing was kind of struck me, you know, at that tender age, you know, when you're sort of questioning everything, the folk movement was about protests and stuff like that and uh so I, I i was a really easy convert to that so tell me what were some of the songwriters that had the biggest impression on you well you know i i, I mean i'm coming up at i'm coming up with a i'm a peer of a lot of them that's one of the kind of interesting things about my career i came up with uh, a lot of these people that recorded my songs, they weren't really much older than me when I, you know, when I finally got, got their attention. I was, you know, kind of in their age almost or, or close to it. And, uh, so I listened to all kinds of stuff. I mean, back, back in Georgia, especially, uh, we had two radio stations and they were not formatted. So you're likely to hear, uh, you know, one minute uh, Jerry Lee Lewis, Great Balls of Fire, and next minute here uh, Eddie Arnold singing the uh, Cattle Call. Is and you know, I mean, even more far out than that, you know, next thing would be Montavani Strings playing, you know, the theme from a Summer Place or something. It'd be crazy. So I was just raised around music. My mother's family was large. She had six brothers and sisters, and all but one of them played an instrument and sang and. Uh, so I just grew up around, around all kinds of music, you know, Southern gospel music. I was raised in the Methodist church and 
you know, uh, my, my parents, both of them liked the, the American songbook, you know, they, they, there was a lot of, you know, Gershwin and Kogi Carmichael and stuff like that around the house. And so I really just had a great musical education. And then when the folk thing came around, that, what, what that did was it made possible for novice guitar players to, uh, you know, learn six chords and be able to play, you know, half the repertoire. So. While I was learning to play the guitar, folk music was sort of a nice outlet, and plus it it, it, was, it was what I was always attracted to, and that's a, you know, lyrically a narrative. And I, you know, it's what if I'm anything, I'm a narrative songwriter, and uh, those uh, those folk songs were were uh, just wonderful examples of that. And, and I, we had a great library, and it, it had all the catalogs of. Folkways Records and all those small label Vanguard records that you you wouldn't be able to buy at the record store, but you'd go to the library and listen to them. And uh, so I heard I heard a lot of Woody Guthrie and I heard a lot of uh, things like you know you wouldn't even know who they are now. Cisco Houston and you know Mance Lipscomb and, and blues guys and it was it was wild. And then when I went to college in Atlanta, there was a folk music society there, and I joined it and. Those were my first performances were in folk music society uh, gatherings and and uh, a lot of clubs, a lot of acoustic clubs there in Atlanta, and I started playing. Even though I didn't know what the hell I was doing, I started playing. <laughs> what was the atmosphere of the, at that time in Atlanta with the folk music? Well, it was it was pretty amazing, really. Atlanta was just an amazing place because I, I was raised in this. It was a wonderful town, LaGrange, Georgia was. I'm not going to say anything negative about it, but it was, it was entrenched in the, in the, in the Jim Crow South. It was completely segregated. I went to a segregated high school. I was the last segregated class in my high school. And, you know, so I, it, it, it really wasn't real life as, as it was becoming known in the sixties. And when I went to Atlanta, Atlanta was 50% black. I ended up having a black roommate for a while. I, I, I was immersed in the, Civil rights movement uh, became involved with a group called the Southern Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, and and I did uh, signage for them, and I and I you know I I did my share of marching and protesting, and and then of course uh, Atlanta was one of the early places to embrace the uh, you know gay liberation movement, so there was a lot just all this. Uh, all this stuff fomenting and, and, and Southern rock was also being born there. And, but it had about four or five of these great acoustic clubs where, you know, uh, the great folk singers of the day would, would, would make a pass through there. Steve Goodman was, was a regular, Jerry Jeff Walker was a regular, um, let me think of some more. Um, of course, uh, Jimmy Buffett was, that's where sort of he got his start as well. And, and I played with all these guys. I was opening act for them, or sometimes I played guitar with them. Also played with, played, played guitar and bass with a guy named Buddy Moss, who was a blues singer from time to time. You know, it's just, it was, it was a wide open spaces. And if you had the sort of the nerve to think you were any good, you know, you could sort of weasel your way onto some of these things, which I, I did for some, for some reason. I thought I was okay. So I, I kind of, I probably drove a lot of people crazy. I always show up with my guitar ready to play, whether they wanted me to play or not. You know, so so uh, that that's just—I think that's part of the 
what I call it, the, 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 the missing ingredient for a lot of people's success is that determination and persistence that, that you, you sometimes take on by being oblivious to your shortcomings, you know. Would you say that perseverance is almost as important as talent? I would say persistence is. I, I, perseverance is, is, is sort of a form of that. I think persistence is really the word I, I like to use, and I actually I teach a lyric writing course, and that's the last last thing I tell them on on the last day of class is that this one word, if you're going to have it tattooed on your arm, do this one. And uh, persistence is is really the key, I think. I think uh, there've been a lot of talented people that, for whatever reason, didn't have that persistence or their egos got in the way or they didn't have the self-confidence to keep keep you know banging against the door and you know their their talents never got got to blossom but i i always showed up and i was ready to go they said it i didn't like it i you know i never took it personally i just rebounded pretty easily and i think you know i wasn't great you know <laughs> i didn't get any awards for showing up and when i played baseball I only got one if we won, you know. So there's a certain amount of that growing up sort of in a, I grew up in the South. So the South is a sports oriented, you know, life as you're, if you play sports, you're not, you know, you're not going to get many friends. So basketball and baseball and football. And, uh, you know, my parents never came to a single game. You know, I mean, they, it just wasn't that kind of world. So yeah, if we only got a word. So I, I was used to without being a loser, you know, so I, I could, I could take the rejection. I just, uh, didn't know when to stop. And, you know, even though sometimes I wanted to stop, I just, something in me, I just, I couldn't leave it unfinished. So I kept, kept doing, kept on coming. And luckily for my, for my, you know, if you're going to be in show business, it's a, it's an artificial environment. It is not like real life. So for me, I was very fortunate that my success was very gradual. And, um, you know, I'd have a, I'd have some success and it'd be a little, you know, six months a year and I have some more. And then even when I started getting songs on the radio, it would be one and then there would be another one sometime, but it wasn't like, until I was in my 40s that I really, you know, started ringing the bell all the time. I mean, I was, and I just happened to, you know, hang in there long enough until it finally came to pass. Would you say there are any rules to what you do? Uh, to what I do? I mean, I make my own rules. You know, my rules are are very, uh, I've been pretty consistent. You know, I'm not going to settle for a lyric that's, not as good as I can possibly make it. I've had to force myself sometimes to change my standards a little bit so I can actually finish some songs. But uh, songs used to take me forever till I moved to Nashville, learned some work habits and some discipline. And uh, then when I moved here, I realized that if you just went and worked at it, you'd, you'd get there, you know, and uh, um, so that was the best thing that happened here. I, I, I don't know what the rule there, there are, um, uh, there are forms that you learn when you're learning to write songs. And I think you learn those by listening to, to the masters, songwriters. But those forms are only to learn, uh, to sent, in the sense that you want to absorb the nature of what something good is. And then you have to do it on your own terms, you know. So I was always, 
always trying to change what I was hearing as well as, you know, embrace it in a certain way. You know, I've had, I had my first hit was with a guy named Livingston Taylor, but it was a song I wrote for myself, you know, because I liked that kind of music. It just turned out it was perfect for him. And he changed it a bit. And I, I learned right off that, you know, that's part of what artists do if they're going to catch your songs. They're going to make them, they're going to change what they need to change to make it believable for them. And that was a really interesting lesson to learn. And I learned a lot from from Livingston Taylor, actually. He was, he was, I mean, here's another interesting thing about my career is that a lot of really great songwriters cut my songs. So I had to gain confidence every time that happened, you know. I remember having uh, Everly Brothers record a song. And, you know, the Everly Brothers wrote some of their biggest hits themselves. And so when they cut a song, you got to figure they've, they know what a good song is. So that's a lot, that's a big confidence booster. And then, uh, Livingston, of course, probably wrote most of his songs back in those days. So when he puts you the only, you know, one of the only non-self-written songs on your album and it becomes a single, you gotta start thinking, well, maybe, maybe he knows something I don't know. And you start to gain a little more confidence. But a, a lot of it is just that the per- persistence and part of that persistence is about commitment. Part of that commitment is about perseverance. They're all connected, you know. I mean, it, it's it's just so easy to quit at any point because it is really hard to to get people's attention, you know. Unless it just happens like every once in a while, somebody like Jackson Brown comes along and he writes at seventeen, writes a the record of his career, you know. But that didn't happen to me. That song that you were talking about, that Livingston Taylor recorded, mm-hmm. first time yeah. love. Yeah, yeah. He was a guest on this show. Very, very interesting guy. Oh, great. It's, yeah, I, I, just, I just played with him recently. Oh, yeah? Yeah. I'm curious, how did he come to find that song? I was opening a show. Um, I, I was in a duo uh, with Artie Traum, and we had made a record for Rounder Records, and we were we were opening, on a little tour opening a show for him in uh, Westchester, Pennsylvania. In a, it was in a little theater, and um, we had a dressing room for a change, so we were in the dressing room kind of warming up for the show, and we were warming up on that song because we had just cut it, and we were kind of working it up, really, and he, he just poked his head and said, what's that song? Kind of like that, and he said what I've heard a million times in my career, I'm looking for one more song for my album, and I've heard that a million times, <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, he said, you, you need to send me that tomorrow. And he was like, you know, I could look at him and tell he was very serious. But I didn't really have, the record hadn't come out yet, and our version of it was a little, you know, kind of slick. I didn't want to send that to him. I didn't want him to do the exact version. So I just did a boombox version of the song, and I did. I sent three songs to him, uh, really rough-sounding boombox versions of these songs. And he cut two of them, and two of them became singles, you know, and uh, <laughs> it's just that easy when you, when you get lucky. You know, that's where the luck comes in from the persistence. The persistence got me to the gig, and then the luck came in because he was walking by the door when we were playing that song. We're joined by singer-songwriter Pat Elger. What was the catalyst? What was the inspiration that got you? to decide, I need to move to Nashville? 
Uh, well, I've been, uh, okay. I mean, I've, I, there I was, I've been, been in Atlanta. I, I spent seven years in Atlanta, got to the top of the, the heap there. Uh, and it wasn't a very large heap to get to the top of. I played all the best clubs, occasionally opening shows for people. I played all the coffee houses I could in the South. And I got to a point where that was it. That's either stay here and do this for the rest of your life or see what was going on somewhere else. And then I, I met a guy named John Harold, uh, from Woodstock, New York. And I'd already met Artie Traum and Happy Traum from Woodstock. And, um, he heard some of my songs. He played a little club that I played all the time. And he said, you know, you just, you ought to just move up to Woodstock. Kind of stuff you're right. You're not going to get arrested around here. And I, you know, he was right. I wasn't going to get arrested around there. Uh, not for a record deal anyway, which I was trying to do at the time. I was trying to be an artist. So I went up to Woodstock and I did, you know, I, it was kind of foolhardy. I didn't really know what I was getting into. My friend John Harold, who talked me into coming up, moved like two weeks later to Los Angeles. So he kind of, he kind of talked me into it and then abandoned me and then, uh, Artie Traum saved my life, though. He, he was, uh, as close to a brother as I'll probably ever have. And he, he would, uh, he'd just find ways to use me in his, when he was playing gigs. And I, I, I stayed alive, but I, the jump, it wasn't a jumping off place. Uh, it was a place to come after you'd already made it. So I realized I had to get out of there. So I went to Manhattan for a couple of years and that's where I got the Livingston Taylor cut. And I, you know, if you've ever been to Manhattan, that's just, a, that's a tough, tough way to go. And, uh, you know, it's really from the South. I mean, at this point, I mean, that's where I identified with. And, uh, my friend Jim Rooney and another guy named Bill Dale here wrote a song called Going Gone With, uh, that became a, uh, my first number one record. We're both in Nashville and both kept urging me to come, come down. And finally, I just had enough in New York and, and, and I ended up, <laughs> In the middle of July in, in Nashville, Tennessee, without a, a real clue what I was going to do, but luckily I was making a little bit of royalty income from uh, a couple of songs that had been recorded, and and I just fell in with the crowd. Everybody I met that first month I was in Nashville turned out to be important people in my life, and you know, just uh, one of those miracles of of. Uh, you know, I took the chance and uh, I, I packed it all up and and it paid off. You know, I know there's I'm, I, I could name ten people that that didn't work out for. You know, I don't know why it was me. I, I don't. I like to think my talent had something to do with it, but I know it didn't have everything to do with it. So I got down here and I, I really enjoyed it. I you know it was laid back. You know, I could get in the door right off the bat. Made a demo with some guys and that were top studio guys and went with. The session was over. I went to pay them, and they wouldn't take a check. They said, "Hey, man, first one's free. Welcome to town." Hmm. So I kind of, I kind of knew I was in the right place. And uh, one of those songs got picked up by a guy in Canada, and it was a like a top ten country hit up there. And you know, it just gradually little things like that kept happening, and until I finally had a big record with Kathy Mateo. And tell us about that that recording, the the Kathy Mateo cut. Well, I didn't have anything to do with it, really. I, the song had been recorded by Nancy Griffith, and then again, it had been recorded uh, by some other people in England. And then my favorite song, uh, singer of all time, Don Williams, was going to be doing a duet with Barbara Fairchild, and he and 
Barbara Fairchild recorded that. And, uh, well, she, they, they were being produced by, by Alan Reynolds. By this time, Kathy Matea had heard Nancy Griffith's version and was very interested in the song, but Alan Reynolds was producing her, so she knew that he wouldn't do it if that record was going to come out. Well, for one time, you know, I got unlucky and lost the cut on Don Williams and Barbara Fairchild, but I got a Kathy Matea cut out of it, which turned out to be her first number one and my first number one. And that's just the crazy thing, which I have this, uh, you know, I have this sort of mantra that if somebody doesn't, uh, you know, you get, you, you pitch a song to somebody and you think they're going to do it and then they don't do it. And I always go, ah, well, there's a bigger plan. Somewhere down the road, so I just don't <laughs> worry about it anymore. So you really just have to keep the faith. Well, you know, look, look. Here's the deal. I went to one of the things I learned early on. If you're not going to keep it, who's going to keep it for you? <laughs> you <laughs> Good <know>? point. <laughs> uh, you know, you have to, you have to take responsibility for your life at some point. And you know, by this time, I'm in my. You know, I'm in my mid-thirties. I've got a kid. You know, I'm married. Uh, you know, I had a lot of responsibilities, so I, I had no, I had no problem taking, taking responsibility for my success. You know, and I had great friends. You know, everybody was very supportive. If I can't, I can't. I mean, you cannot underestimate what it feels like to have good quality people telling you, "Hang in there, kid. You know, you're going to make it." You know, it really made a big difference. You mentioned a moment ago the songwriter and producer Alan Reynolds. Yeah, you couldn't find a better, song, more song-friendly producer than him. Plus, he's one of the great songwriters of all time, too. He's in the Songwriters Hall of Fame as well. You know, that's one of the kind of amazing things, really, you know, to have ended up in the Songwriters Hall of Fame with all these guys that are my idols. It's just kind of, that's mind-boggling, you know. What did that feel like? when they announced it? Well, you know, I knew about it, of course, ahead of time. So, it, But when, you know, it's up there and you're getting the award, and, you know, uh, Alan Reynolds presented me with the award and uh, Garth Brooks sang for me, and, you know, and they're all saying these great things about you and you're kind of going, you sure you got the right guy, you know? And then, uh, you know, next thing you know, this is one thing. <laughs> This is what I said in my speech, actually. And But then, again, I said, you know, thank you. At the end of all my thank yous, I said, well, I know I know one thing. On Tuesday morning, I'm going to have a little bit of swagger when I take the trash cans out to the curb because it's back to real life. But, you know, you, you, you sort of walk tall for a little while. <laughs> a moment ago, you said there there isn't a more, there wasn't a more song-friendly producer than Alan Reynolds. Yeah, yeah. Why? Well, you know, he just had he just had this um well he was first of all, I think that's that's partially due to the fact that he was a great songwriter himself and he also worked with another great songman for many, many years. A couple of them, as a matter of fact. I mean if I could name the people that he was working with were that were um Jack Clement, who produced some of the greatest hits of country music. Some of his songwriting partners were Dickie Lee, who wrote uh, She Thinks I Still Care. Bob McDill, who wrote every great song you ever wanted to write yourself. Uh, and he, you know, he was just involved with so many songs that were naturally great to begin with. 
that anything that was not up to their st- that standard, I don't think he sh- ever showed any interest in. He was, uh, he was, he was very, I knew that if Alan, you know, we had a, we sort of had a partnership publishing wise. And a lot of people would think, well, that gives you a leg up. And in fact, the truth of the matter is, I think he held me to a much higher standard than any other person coming through the door. Cause he didn't want to, he did not want any kind of hint of, uh, whatever you want to call it, favoritism, uh, to, to be mentioned in, with his name on it. Because he was, he, he was the only producer I knew that took home bags of cassettes every weekend and listened to every song. So I, I had to write up to his standard. I had, you know, he, we didn't have great conversation, big conversations about it. But I knew if Alan said, Hey, uh, that third song, uh, you, you cut the other day. That's, that's, that's good. I might, I might, he, and he would always say this, I might play that for Kathy or somebody, you know. He wouldn't say he was going to play it or that he thought they were going to cut it. He'd go, yeah, I might play that for, like he's still thinking on it, you know. And, um, so you, you always knew that if he went ahead and pitched the song on your behalf, that he had the greatest confidence that it was the right song. Hmm. And he never, and also never pressured any artist to record a song. He simply presented it with his explanation why he thought it was great. But he never went, you know, hey, I know, I know, you're not listening to me. We need to cut this. He would never do that. He always, uh, the, the artist was the arbiter of their own good taste and he respected that. And, and, uh, he knew a good song was going to find its way anyway, so that was the other part of it, you know. So I, I that, you know, that kind of uh, whatever you want to call it, uh, I guess we would call that today integrity. That kind of integrity, being around that, very inspirational. You know, you know when you when you, it's like uh, it's like going fishing. <laughs> if you really get, you know, I'm not much of a fisherman, but if I ever if I ever catch a big fish. You gotta have a lot of respect for it because, you know, there were a lot of things involved. It was the equipment in the, uh, the time of day and the guy driving the boat or whatever. It just wasn't me throwing my line in the water. And largely, you prefer to collaborate with another, uh, another artist, correct? Well, uh, you know, I always write some songs by myself, but uh, coming here, I learned this crazy, crazy thing called, co-writing it's not a natural experience to begin with but for me it really became sort of the discipline of my own songwriting i knew that if i was going to show up with another songwriter i was going to have a lot of respect for them and i was going to do my best and i just had a knack for sort of immersing myself and you know we could they could tell me their story and i could just i could just put myself in that picture there's a guy named jimmy wayne here who uh Great, great singer, great songwriter. He had, he sort of forsake his, forsook, forsook? Is that a word? He gave up his, uh, his, his commercial career to, to go and, uh, um, raise awareness for foster children. So he, he took this walk from Nashville to, uh, Arizona and, uh, took seven months. And along the way he filmed it and much of it and recorded incidents on, on little recorders and took still photographs and he had this great story to tell but he didn't know how to tell it but he could tell me the story 
And he told me that story, and he and I sat there and wrote this, this his life for that seven months. And I wrote probably 98% of the lyrics to that that 14 songs we wrote because I've just got this knack for immersing myself in somebody else's story. And that's just because I'm a bored storyteller, I guess. And uh, so that's that's what I'm known for, you know. Uh, Melody-wise, I guess I'm known I'm known for writing things that are pretty singable, you know. But the hard part's always lyric writing. I teach a master class in lyric writing, and we don't use music, and it blows their minds when we when I tell them that. You know, we just I say it's a blank page, and you got to fill it up with something that looks like a song, and. Uh, and I can tell by looking at most of your songs whether they're any good without even reading them. <laughs> and, uh, and uh, you know, it's an interesting way to, 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 to do it. But a lot of it's just been, you know, trial and error. I used to struggle over lyrics when I first came to Nashville. It's just, it's it's a difficult, you know, it's hard to, you know, if I, if I could tell some a kid how to write a song, then I would be... I would be in a lot of demand, but I can only tell a songwriter how to get a, to be a better songwriter. So we we have seniors in the songwriting program, and, and that's our students. So they're already songwriters. I'm just trying to teach them how to be better ones. As we mentioned at the top of the interview, there's a long list of artists that have recorded your songs, and we didn't even mention all of them. I mean, there were others, yeah. you know, yeah. Crystal yeah. Gale. Yeah. George Hamilton the fourth. Yep, that's one of my first cuts. I got Nashville. I got two or three cuts by him. He was a great singer. He was a wonderful person too. Yeah. Yeah, he really was. What recording that an artist made surprised you the most? Oh, surprised me the most. Hmm, that's a good question. Well, um. <laughs> Well, they're all surprising, I have to say. I mean, that's a, that's a, a glib, easy out, but it is really always just kind of fascinating, you know, to hear. Well, when I heard the, you know, when I heard the Everly Brothers singing one of my songs, that was a little, that was a little hard to, my, uh, my uncles, I had twin uncles, uh, Leora and Lamar, and they taught me, my first song that I learned from them was Kathy's Clown. I had this long, you know, adolescent attachment to the Everly Brothers. So when I heard them singing a song, it was pretty, pretty moving, you know, to say the least. You know, I, I, I got my first A, you know, A in English writing a paper in the 11th grade on Peter, Paul, and Mary. And then they cut a song and that was pretty, pretty special moment. But, you know, it's always, I'm always surprised. I'm always anxious to hear what somebody does with it, you know, because one of the things uh, you learn if you're going to write songs for other people is I write the song. After the song's written, I let it go. It's somebody else's thing after that, you know. I don't fall in love with my songs. I, I like to tell people I'm not married to them. I, they're just one night stands and we, I move on to the next one. And, uh, <laughs> Uh, so, so I don't fall in love with my work. Uh, you know, I appreciate I appreciate some songs more than others, and but I, I don't have favorites. And I don't really I don't really sit around pondering, you know, my whatever you want to call it, my my own personal greatness is not something I think about, <laughs> and I don't I don't really uh, 
I don't really subscribe to that anyway. I think I've been a, a pretty good writer of songs, but you know, more than that, I, you can't get me to say much more than that. So many people who are artists, they pray, <laughs> they they just hope to one day have a song like the Thunder Rolls, for example. Sure. You know? Sure. Yeah. I'm hoping you can tell us about how you met Garth Brooks and what it's like to write with him. Well, I met him. He was just, uh, he was getting, having his first meeting with Alan Reynolds. And he was coming out of uh, Alan's office, which was across the street from, uh, across the hall from uh, the person who did our royalty accounting. And I happened to be in that office looking at something and I was coming out and they were coming out at the same time. And he just introduced us. He looked, you know, Garth looked like this bigger than life kind of, you know, cowboy <laughs> to me. And, you know, I'm, I don't, I've never owned any cowboy boots or a hat. So I, you know, anybody that dresses that way is always kind of gets my attention. He was, he was decked out in the whole, the whole deal that day. And, uh, Alan said, Hey, you ought to, you ought to take a chance on and, and write some songs with this guy. And so I ended up going and seeing him play. He turned out he was playing that night, so I went out and saw him, and he, I thought he was fantastic. And, you know, we wrote, the second song we wrote was The Thunder Rolls. He came in with the idea himself. He, it was, the idea came from a song I'd written uh, with Mark Sanders that Kathy had, Matea had cut called Like a Hurricane. There's a line in there about thunder rolling and, he had been listening to that. He said, wouldn't it be cool if we wrote a cheating song where when it, every time the guy did something bad, the thunder rolled. And then we kind of just jumped on it like a dog on a bone and wrote it really fast. So, I mean, we finished it by lunch and we recorded it by then. And the demo of that song is really uh, just me and him. And it's exactly like the record. It came out exactly like the record. It just... Just the way I like to write, you know, with an arrangement in mind, with even a you know a part, if, there, if there's a possibility of a you know a signature guitar part or something, I write that. And I ended up playing. I played the guitar on the record, actually. You know, he's a he's a really uh, he sticks. He knows what he wants. That's the best thing you can say about him. And he contributes in a major way to everything. Sometimes it's the actual line. Sometimes he leads you to the line. Sometimes he. As far as melodies go, I would always map out the chords, and he would actually sing the, the uh, melody he wanted to sing. So the melodies are actually his. The chord, chord arrangements are mine. He's a great, equal partner and a great partner. And we we rode for about six months, and then he became Garth Brooks. So after that, you know, it's a different ball game. So, well, I think we've got to written one one song after that, but. Uh, you know, at the time I got I got him, and, and I mean by that I mean by the time I had him to myself, you know, he was just a guy from Oklahoma named Garth. So it was wonderful, and we had a great time. He's a very nice man. He still is very trustworthy. He's the hardest working guy I've ever met, and a great role model for anybody that's wanted to be an artist or or a songwriter or or just a, a honest person. He's a real he's a real dude. What is it? Do you think? that resonates with so many people about the Thunder Rolls? I, that, I don't, that, I would be the first to be mystified by that. I don't know, because I finally saw the show for the first time, the big show that everybody goes to, and I went for the first time because he 
sort of guilted me into it. He called me up and said, how many tickets do you want? You need to be there. And I thought, so I, I did, I did go and it was wonderful. It's like, you know, going to going roller skating or something. I mean, it's just like a big fun evening of great songs. And, um, I don't know. I, that's, that, that's a good mystery. I, I don't really understand that. I, I, I think it's a well, as far as, you know, well-written narrative, it's as tightly written as any song I've ever been involved with. You know, it's very it's a visual song. And then it's got the big chorus. I mean, you know, the amazing thing to me is this is the other thing that's really crazy about that song. All these heavy metal bands have recorded it. It's like, 15 heavy metal bands have cut it and last year it was a it was a number two hit on the heavy metal chart by a group called all that remains and uh i had a video it's seen you know it's gotten about 18 million views so i don't really know but i'm sure happy about it you know you know that's the that's the workhorse that's one of those things you like you say everybody says if i could just write a you know and i said it a million times you know, if I could just write, uh, you know, a song like, uh, uh, you know, I could name 50 of them. It, uh, you know, if I could just write to She Thinks I Still Care. Uh, you know, but the bottom line is you can't. You just have to write the ones you write really good. Uh, and nobody knows what's going to happen with a song. I have some fantastic songs that no one will ever record. And uh, that's okay. Because I had plenty of them that they did, and you know that's 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 a that's pretty. You just have to take what they what they give you, <laughs> sort of. And I, I have so I just been real. I, I feel very very fortunate to have had the career I've had, and you know there's people who've had ten times bigger careers than me, and you know. I had a good one though, and I and I'm not diminishing it, but I always like to keep it in in perspective. You know, I'm I'm still trying to learn something about songwriting, and I'm still in the process of teaching. I'm still trying to learn something, and I, I that is uh, been a lot of fun actually. So I had the chance to listen to a lot of your songs, the songs that you recorded yourself. And there's, yeah, uh, yeah. There's a strong, you know, your your beginning is in folk music, and I love folk yeah. music. And the recordings, there's a lot of that sound in them. Yeah. Well, you know, um, I had a little band for a while, and I, I didn't want to do what everybody else did. You know, everybody has a keyboard and electric guitar and all that stuff. So I put together this kind of goofy band. It was drums, bass, harmonica, and me. And I had a background singer, a old girl by the name of Trisha Yearwood. That didn't hurt either. And, um, you know, we made, we, we made, uh, this strange hybrid kind of sound that was sort of country, sort of folky, but it was everything, uh, on the guitar was played finger style and, uh, very syncopated, very much like, you know, what I, that was the, I would guess that's the beauty of whatever my success was. I didn't come here and become a different songwriter. I just became better at what I was doing. And, um, you know, the first Livingston Taylor album was that, that first Livingston Taylor cut was just what I was doing at the time. And, you know, I was writing these, um, you know, really lyric dense 
sort of pop folk songs. And I, you know, I had no intention of really being in country music whatsoever. I, 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 I liked it and I grew up listening to it, uh, in Georgia, especially, you know, um, but it wasn't my goal to be <laughs> country songwriter of the year by any stretch. You know, I didn't even, I didn't know what that meant, you know? So you just go where life takes you and, you know, the records were just fun things to do. I never had any illusion I was going to be a, I had one brief period of illusion when I got a deal on Capitol for, for a record and put out that record. I thought for a second maybe, maybe I was going to have this other kind of artistic career. But when you're on Sugar Hill around her, you know, you're not going to sell, you know, except for Alison Krauss, nobody's ever sold those kind of records. No. So I was just happy to be, it was fun. I never had a bad time in the studio with those guys. Those are just wonderful musicians, and the opportunity to cut with them was always just, for me, a party. You know, we did them in four or five days, and we didn't labor over them. We didn't, uh, you know, it was no all-day mixing on anything. We might spend all day mixing, but we'd mix like eight songs, you know. So it was it was just, uh, I guess, uh our cat, it, what, the best part about those records for me is uh, I can listen to them now and it sort of captured a moment in time of who I was at the moment. And, and you know, that's, that's kind of neat. What is the best thing about being Pat Alger? Uh, oh boy, I don't, I don't really know if there is anything particularly there. I guess the best thing is I, I'm a good, pretty good dad. Uh, I'm learning how to be a grandpa. Other than that, I guess the only thing I could say is, you know, I, 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 I like to help people. And when I have the opportunity to, to help somebody, these young people I teach especially, uh, that's, that's kind of satisfying. And I love to go out and play. And one, one of the best things about playing now is when people, people know the songs. And, you know, for a minute there, you, you bring a lot of pleasure to somebody and, and then you pack it up and you go home and you just be Pat Alter again and just, you know, as they say, my my feet stink just like everybody else's, you know. Um I'm just a normal person most of the time and 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 uh occasionally I get this opportunity to to be Pat Alger, the semi famous songwriter, and that's that's fun. But I don't take it that seriously to be honest. <laughs> I always like to close the interviews. I just I give the guests the microphone. I just I let them take yeah. the stage and say whatever they want. Totally open-ended. Well, if you're trying to be a songwriter, you know, it's a it, it's a tough it's a tough row, you know, to hold. You're looking at about a, a one a one and a half to 2% success rate and by success meaning you might have a 10-year career, you know, to have a like 35-40 year career like I have. That's just Phenomenal, really. I mean, you're really talking about the top one percent of of the songwriters. So it's a it's a tough field, but it's very rewarding. I think learning how to write songs is a great thing. It, it's kept me out of the psychiatrist's office for years, and uh, you know, it's great. It's great therapy. It's great exercise. Great mental exercise. You know, when I'm tired of yelling at the radio, uh, the current events, uh, I can just sit down and and write something about. Uh, a person I know or uh, something that happened to me, I could sit down and write a lyric about it. 
so I'm very, I feel very fortunate. I got to do what I set out to do. That's, uh, that's, that's rare in this country. And, uh, if you have the dream, follow it as long as you can. You know, I always tell my, my kids, no, don't have a plan B because if you do, you will be so tempted to use it. Uh, so I didn't have a plan B and that, that was, uh, you know, somebody had asked me to teach when, you know, 20 years ago, I would have said, get out of here. But, you know, when they asked me, I was, you know, in, in retirement age and I thought, well, let's try it, see what happens, you know. So I've learned to grow, I grew into that. I'm still looking for opportunities to do things, and uh, I feel very fortunate to, you know, almost 71 years old, to be still trying to grow, you know, in, in mentally and, and spiritually, and and be a better person, you know. My last question: Who is Pat Alger? How do you define <laughs> yourself? <laughs> well. Uh, What's the old saw? I, I get up and put my pants on like everybody else. But probably I don't. I probably get up and put them on slower than everybody else um, <laughs> at this age. What I am right now, I, I, I like to think that on some level, at some part of the time, I'm a bit of a role model for some young people. Most of the time, I'm a father and a grandfather. I'm a pretty good ex-husband. I was never a great husband. I'm a good friend to, to good friends and fortunately have many, many of those. Uh, so that's, that's who I am. I'm really defined by the, by, uh, by my, the quality of my friends, I suppose, and, and those relationships. And, uh, you'd have to ask them who old Pat Alger is. I, I, I don't know. I, I guess that's why I'm still writing songs, trying to f- figure that out. <laughs> Well, I've really enjoyed this chance to speak with you. My pleasure, Paul. I hope you have a great success with your projects and uh, keep on talking to songwriters. Is there, you, you sometimes find an interesting one. I did, yes. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I've enjoyed it. All right. Okay, man. All right, happy talk. trails. <laughs> Thanks. Bye-bye. You too. Bye. The Paul Leslie Hour is hosted, produced, and written by Paul Leslie for Lifestyles Entertainment. For information, visit thepaulleslie.com. Thank you for being with us. Until next time.